Welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And in today's episode, I have a wonderful conversation with Joel Filio, one of the all-time greatest endurance coaches. And, and what I loved about this chat was just how open and forthcoming Joel was with his wealth of knowledge that he's built over the last 20 years. And the big takeaway for me was just how simple his approach is and just and what that approach is is just the minimal effective dose of training for any given athlete. So it's not about volume. It's not about data. He's actually looking at it from what is the minimal effective dose of training that an athlete can do to perform consistently and frequently and perform on the world stage on any specific race day. And if you're an athlete or a coach, this is a must listen. And even if you're not, just the message in this episode is to unclutter your life and simplify and do the basics well. I want to thank everybody for all your feedback. It's It's been really valuable, um, whether you're giving me feedback on the app with reviews or via social media. Um, on the social media, I'll try and get back to all of you guys on the, the apps. They don't let me get back to you or respond to your reviews, so I apologize for that. But if you want me to uh, get back to you, and um, then come to my social media platforms. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe it and share it. You'd be doing me a huge favor with that. And um, thanks for listening, everybody. I, I really enjoyed this chat with Joel. So I hope you do as well. Before we start, I've got to give a quick shout out to my friends at Athletic Greens that helped make this show possible. I love this company and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. You see, when I retired from professional sport, I thought, oh, great. I, I won't have to worry about any more injuries and sickness would be a thing of the past. But as it would happen, I felt like my immune system decided to retire as well. So I was looking for something that was easy to use and that would support my immunity, boost my energy, and just help with my recovery and my gut health. And and I found that with Athletic Greens. And honestly, I can't believe a green drink sourced from Whole Foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I love it. And there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water. So there's no clumpiness to deal with. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc nitrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. Look, even with a balanced diet, it's difficult to cover all your nutritional needs, but that's where Athletic Greens can really help. Their daily drink is like a nutritional insurance for your body. It's NSF certified for sport and there's no harmful chemicals, no GMOs, no funny additives. Honestly, I can't recommend Athletic Greens enough. Whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system or address your gut health, now's a perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. There's a great offer going on now for you to give a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free daily travel packs with your first purchase. That's a $79 added value. And Athletic Greens is delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I want to also give a huge shout out to my mushroom buddies at Four Sigmatic that are just tremendous supporters of this show and an incredible wellness company that's mixing shrooms and aptogens with coffee, cocoa, latte, protein powder, and even edible skincare products. Personally, I've been using Four Sigmatic for years, and one of my staples is the mushroom coffee with the lion's mane instead of just regular coffee. And wow, I just love how much more productive and creative and clear thinking I am. And and I don't get the jitters or the midday crash. Plus, 
It includes chaga, which is the king of all the mushrooms. Right now, chaga is my favorite functional mushroom. The compounds and antioxidant properties of chaga just play such a huge role in supporting our immune system and maintaining its function. And you're probably thinking, ah, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? And I can guarantee you it tastes just like regular coffee and not like mushrooms at all. And even the lion's mane elixir, which I take regularly on its own, is sweet and smooth. And best of all, Four Sigmatic stands behind all their products unconditionally with a 100% money-back guarantee. So love every sip or just get your money back. And, of course, we have a special offer for you, the Be With Champions listener. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Just go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Greg or enter code Greg at checkout. That is F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash Greg to receive 15% off your order. All right. Today's guest is one of the most successful endurance coaches on the planet, producing Olympic medalists and world champions consistently in both the men's and the women's categories. I've had several of his athletes on BB's champions, including Simon Whitfield, Mario Moller, and Vincent Louis, and all sang his praises and, and praised the incredible team culture that he's created. And I've been eager to get him on the show to just get a better sense of the, the why, the how, the what of his training culture. And He's been a good mate of mine for almost 20 years, and I've watched him develop to one of the all-time great coaches, and I'm delighted to have him on this show. So so welcome, and, and thanks for joining me on Be With Champions, Mr. Joel Filial. How are you, mate? Great. Thank you f- so much for that introduction, and I uh, really look forward to speaking with you tonight. Yeah. Where are you at the moment in your lockdown part of the world? Yeah, so I live in Glasgow in Scotland, uh, so I'm uh, at home. All right, and you you got the couple of kids and everything, so you you're getting plenty of parenting time, I bet, right now. Yeah, this is the longest time I'll have been at home for maybe a decade, depending. Obviously, different homes, but but still a long time. I know, because I think uh, I mean when I've had both Mario and Vincent, you know, said, "Look, we're on the road, sort of two hundred plus days a year." I mean, are you at, you're with the athletes that entire time, the training squad, aren't you? We we spend. Um, a long, a long period of uh, training camps together. Uh, t- typically, that that starts in uh, December and runs through to the first uh, World Series. So usually, that's in March, and then uh, we we regroup uh, where where the schedule uh, demands. Uh, but but typically, yeah, between December and and September, we we spend uh, a lot of time together. It's uh, not a residential squad, so it, it's a squad that moves according to the needs uh, and the calendar. As opposed to living in one place, like uh, like back in the day in, in Victoria or or other places like Leeds or or places around the world where the athletes live full time in, in that place. So so we move according to what makes sense for us. And are you able to travel with the family for a lot of that? Uh, sometimes um, it, it it's difficult to combine both. And um, I mean, I didn't choose uh, Glasgow here because it was great for training, but for family. So. <laughs> Although the, I have to say the training is quite good, but but perhaps the the weather and 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 really uh, the the location isn't our first choice. So we we uh, often are in Spain, uh, sometimes in France, or 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 um, we were supposed to be in uh, Florida this year, but obviously that got changed. Uh, but but we we move around so but not not so much with the family. Uh, so that's been the the challenge for me to balance that over the last years. Mm, yeah, it's, it was interesting. I was going to have you on the show probably a couple of months ago almost now, right when this all sort of 
was happening and you're like, hang on, Greg, I've got, I've got to get back to, to Scotland and get, get settled again. I think you even made it over to Florida, didn't you, for a little bit and then you kind of had to get back? Or No, I didn't even make it on the, on the flight. Uh, the, the athletes had uh, gone over just, just right around the time that um, the U.S. was stopping flights from Europe. And um, at the time, it was still okay from the U.K., but then when it came time for me to travel, it was, it was too late. Mm. And so how are you with the athletes now? I mean, this, I mean, most of the athletes you've had in your squad for quite some time. And so I think they have a pretty good feel of you, the routine and, and that kind of thing. And how have you dialed back or how are you managing their training now from, from a distance and the kind of training that you're giving them? At first, um, there was a lot of uncertainty. We we didn't know, you know, whether we were potentially training for races still in May, uh, or or if you know, then the then the ITU decided they would um, stop things up until the end of June, and then we still weren't sure. But it's got a bit easier now that we know that the season has been really postponed, uh, at least till the to the European autumn. So uh, there's not a precedent for this, though. That and and I've you know thought about what what's the right way to handle this and and it's not something that you can draw on experience you know it's not like a normal off season without races you know the athletes still want to do some training but but how do we manage that without clear goals so i think i've been trying to treat it differently for everybody and trying to understand well what's what's going to allow the athlete to get through this period what do they need to do do they need to be kind of in a, a maintenance phase, kind of keep a, a stable level of training that they can uh, manage, but but uh, gives us room to build up from there. Some others have have gone after some some goals, whether that be some some long rides. Uh, e racing has been something interesting for some athletes, so it really has been individual. But I tried to give everybody space to kind of process it in their own way. Um, all of these athletes were were building up and totally focused on on Tokyo, and then just for to have that stop. And you know, we've we've all been on this process for for many years, and and um, you know, to have that goal uh, be postponed has been a has been a real adjustment. And and uh, when I think about you know again how it, how does everybody handle that individually? What do they need to do? Uh, did they need to back off for a little bit, take a rest and regroup or some, you know, push on with some short term goals? But uh, I think the answer ultimately has been individually thinking about knowing the athlete and and finding the best individual plan for them. Uh, just recently, we, we started to see some dates perhaps pop up for the autumn again, and, and that's going to help a lot to have some goals to focus on. Mm. It was funny. The first thing I said to Laura, who you know as well, and mm when all of this happened was just as, as ex athletes, we could just sense the, the almost a deflated feeling that would have occurred with the whole year and the Olympic focus. And don't get me wrong. I'm not cheapening what's truly happening to many other people out there, but in terms of Olympic athletes and the mindset that you've had and the all in kind of mindset that you've had for many, many years to get to this one goal and then to have it at the moment just postponed, which is, good that it's just postponed but you you're kind of in that final you're getting ready for that final push in in kind of in that april may june getting ready for sort of a july august olympics and and suddenly it's like like you said whoa whoa <laughs> i've never been here before how do i how do i deal with this and and uh how much of it has been managing some of the emotions with the athletes or have they all kind of just taken it on and and themselves 
Uh, I think everyone's different. I think some some probably you know needed some time to process it, and so I thought the best to give them some space to do that, and um, you know want to communicate, but not over communicate and you know because there hasn't been really a lot of news up until recently you know we were just waiting you know and that uncertainty you know it certainly has some mental overhead that of like well we're waiting we don't know we you know we can talk about it but we kind of end up spinning our wheels speculating and and spending a bunch of energy uh so yeah, I think I think again everyone is is different I, I think some you know even personally like myself I feel like we've been on that, you know, the high performance treadmill, the same, the same routine year after year of clear goals, what we're doing, you know, as you say, all in, and, and that makes the the quite painful to sort of stop in in that sense and 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 have to deal with a totally different pattern and figure a way through that, um, you know. So I've felt that personally, and and I think people have handled it in different ways. I think as we're coming out of this first phase of of being able to move again, train again, depending where where they've been, um, I think people are starting to reflect, and some athletes reflecting how there's been a positive side to this, which is, you know, finding time to appreciate that process. You know, and and when you're in the thick of it, it can kind of you know disappear that everyday process. You don't think about it very much. It, it's hard, but it's it's enjoyable. Um, it can sometimes feel, you know. Can you you ask yourself? Can you keep doing it? Can you sustain this? And so this this pause, this external pause, I think has has caused some reflections in in a number of athletes that I've talked to, and you think, well, you know, we have to find the silver lining here, and the silver lining is that you know that refinding that joy and appreciation for for what it is we do and how fortunate we're able to you know pursue sport and in a in a focused and serious way and and you know looking forward to the gradual uh, resumption of that i mean what the new normal is we'll we'll see it it may take some time but just having goals again i think will will help us all get uh, pointed in the right direction Mm, that's really well said, and I've kind of said it on this show a couple of times that there, there have been some positives that takeaways from from this, and you know whether that's spending more time with family or it's it's working on our own individual health and immunity and all these kinds of things, and um, or if it's like you said, just being present and being appreciative and and having tremendous gratitude for the life that we did have or, or were having, and 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 having that chance to reflect, I think is. Um, that, that that really is a positive thing because that that treadmill that you jump on, <laughs> pardon the pun, but that treadmill of life that we all get on, we're full steam ahead. And especially as athletes, you you put the blinders on to the rest of the world to some degree. You have to, and you just go right. This is what I'm doing, and I'm one track, and then boom, you're being ripped out of it. And I think you put it right. It's like when we're talking about um. Well, you you've got two little kids, so you'd know the book Oh, the Places You Go with uh, Doctor Zeus. It's one of my favorite all time books. It's like one of the first self help books <laughs> for kids. But there's a point in that book where uh, basically the book for people that don't know it, it talks about how you're going to be flying and, and you're going to be beating everybody, and then you're going to come crashing down, and you're going to be in a slump, and unslumping yourself is really hard to do. And but then you're going to be stuck in this waiting room, and waiting is like the worst place. It's like I'm just stuck in this waiting room and people are waiting for a train or waiting for, you know, it's, it's a very uh, rhyming book and it's a lot of fun. But the point of that whole book and what you were just saying, this, this being consumed of just sitting in the waiting and the not knowing is very uneasy. And, and you kind of, 
it's frustrating to some degree. So I, I get what you're saying. There's a little bit of like, okay, there's light at the end of the tunnel for all of us. And, um, and that is exciting, you know, going forward. But I just want to wind the clock a little bit back. And well, even before I do that, I really want to look at just 2019 and, and give you a bit of a pat on the back for people that don't know. And I'm going to be slightly off this, so you can correct me. But 2019, you had both the men's and the women's world champions with uh, Katie Safaris and, and Vincent Louis in the men. And then you had, I think it was 19 podiums with about 12 wins with varying athletes. Um, and then I didn't, and I think Mario as well was on the podium of the World Series as well. That was a pretty outstanding year from one squad, one coach. Is, has that ever been done before to quite that degree? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, mean, I think you're, you're more or less right. Um, we had um, seven different athletes win, win 12 races, uh, 12 seven. World Series. Seven oh. different athletes of four That's... women and, and three men. And I mean, I, it, I guess they tend not to think about it too much because we're just in the moment, you know, doing our thing and, and, and the athletes are going out there and racing. But, you know, it's nice to reflect a little bit and we have had more time now hmm. um, to, th to think about it a little bit. But I guess it's, it's built up to that over time. So it, it you know, it, it's, it's not a, it wasn't kind of each one wasn't sort of surprising. We take one, you know, we, each part of the process, each race, each build up, you know, as its own thing. Uh, but, but certainly, you know, really fortunate to have uh, been along this journey with these athletes and, and, and being part of that success. And obviously really fortunate that I'm able to work with all of these uh, very talented and driven athletes and, and athletes who could commit to the, the same vision together and, and, and be part of that process together. Uh, and and even compete together, you know, as you said, um, um, Mario on the podium and his training mate Vince um, take takes the world title that that he had held for the previous three years. But being part of that process together and and appreciating that, uh, you know, training with some of your biggest competitors, um, I think, you know, really when I reflect on that part of it, you know, how we've been able to compete together, but also enjoy that process together help each other get better then you know i'm uh, that's the part that that i take the most joy from is is reflecting on that part of it you know the outcomes are great but you know how did we how do we get to that and build that environment up where athletes wanted to be part of it they chose to be part of it and you know we've been building over a number of years but but you know to have that kind of success is, is fantastic and you know, well, in the moment, as I say, I don't tend to think about it too much. But you know, over time, certainly, um, really pleased to been, uh, have those opportunities. Uh, you know, up and up into 2019. Look, I think there's a number of reasons I wanted you on the show. Obviously, I want to dive into a bit of your training philosophies and everything else. But probably the number one reason I wanted you on was after my conversations, um, specifically with with Mario and, and Vincent. Um, and to some degree, Simon Whitfield, but but he's he's probably, you know, 2008 is when he got the silver medal with you at the Olympic Games. But more recently, Mario and Vincent. And, and I probably spent a good third of each episode with both of them talking about you and the squad. And so what fascinated me was, you know, I've been in a number of squads and I found them quite challenging as an athlete with a, a reasonably big chip on his shoulder and a bit of an ego and wanting to race everybody and prove myself all the time, or maybe you just call it insecurities. I don't know what it is, but you've been able to create this team culture where 
I mean, Mario, we both know, is probably one of the most likable people on the planet and, and one of the nicest souls you could ever meet. Vincent Lewis was just I got to know him a little bit more on the podcast and for those that haven't listened to my show, that's a great one to go listen to because just a, an inspirational story and and tremendous character in his own right. But they both talked about how they never had that sense of real ego. I mean, Vincent said when he first joined you, maybe there was a little bit, he felt like he had to kind of prove that he's meant to belong and then he got his, his ass handed to him by everybody. But um, But both of them sort of talked about this, this team culture is that something that you are aware of and are creating or is it something that you've just been fortunate to have athletes with the right personalities and the right mix i think it's a bit of both i think from from when we we started um i guess the current iteration of of this squad started in after the london olympics just after that and um and mario was one of the first athletes um that joined and and uh, you know, Vince came quite a bit later, but, you know, so in part, it's who the athletes were and, you know, honestly, a bit of luck of the right kind of personalities. But of course, you you know, you tend to attract and build relationships with people that you you can find the same wavelength, you know, so so that's been been part of it. So a bit, you know, can't deny the, the being at the right place at the right time, but also, what we reinforce, you know, and I think our our culture is one uh, where we try to reinforce and and um, the way that we operate is is about self discipline and it's about autonomy. It's about working together, but also doing the right thing individually. And we we don't value or or emphasize. Uh, the quality of our training from how fast we're going and going and, you know, and pushing each other. So it's kind of perhaps the opposite that somebody might think at the beginning, you know, all these guys, uh, are they pushing each other is the reason that they're winning because they're making each other go faster in training. And, and actually I don't think that's, that's not our goal. And we certainly, we, we always try to be keeping things under control and, and and it's not about going faster, but it's kind of more supporting each other through the everyday process, you know. And I think, you know, it being together makes it easier to do the level of work required, um, and and that process day after day after day. You know, there's always somebody on a on a slightly better day that pulls you up, and and other days where where you're full of energy and you might pull somebody else up. But it's not about pushing each other to go faster. So that's where perhaps we've been a bit different and that's been part of how we've been able to i think have su sustainable success we, we think about what's what's the right amount of work uh the right amount of quality uh, the the speeds that we need to go to get the right uh, response and 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 not necessarily always going faster so there's been that part of we don't have a competitive culture in that way um you know, of course, I mean, everyone has their own confidence and their own insecurities. And I suppose if we can have the kind of environment where, you know, it's, you know, it's okay to have a bad day. And, and in fact, you know, we'd probably encourage athletes to shut it down if they're, if they're struggling or, or if they're, if they're not on that day, not to just push through, um, just because their training mates are, but know that they'll have another day. And, you know, that, that, idea that you know you should never do today what will compromise what you plan to do tomorrow 
So if you know if going too too fast today is gonna is gonna negatively impact you tomorrow, then then we try to avoid those situations. So within that wider culture, I think that's partly why we don't have the 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 feeling of of a lot of competitiveness. I think we try to have high standards. We try to you know challenge each other in in different ways. But underpinning all of that is that individual responsibility to to do the right thing for them. And that we don't reward, or I, I try not to reward, but this, this, then the athletes will do it themselves, even if I'm not there. You know, if we have paces or a goal for the session, you know, going faster than the goal pace isn't necessarily a good workout. You know, it isn't, it isn't something that is rewarded or celebrated too much. You know, it's more like, well, that one was too fast. Let's slow it down on the next one. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that's what we're, I'm trying to trying to find the the sweet spot of of that it's a never ending process but trying to find that that way of operating that allows people to find consistency that you know that they grow their own self confidence you know by by lifting each other up you know and and it has built on on um year by year you know uh, uh, Again, we're fortunate to have an athlete like Mario have some initial success, and and then you know other athletes came and saw how he did things and and how we did things, and and that was able to grow from there. And so you know when 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 Vincent joined, uh, for sure he benefited from seeing how Mario did things, the way that he operated, and and the others, and and that's enabled that also to contribute back to to athletes like Mario or on the women's side with Katie or others where. You know their their training mates also help them. So you know, but within the whole context of of our environment, we we try that try to find that that you know we work hard, we push each other, but without it feeling competitive. You know, um, it's I think the the success of a group is is that the, each individual finds what they need from the group, and then together as a as a whole, we're better. Mm. That's phenomenal. Even just what you said at the end there, I love that. And it was kind of when I spoke to both Mario and Vincent, both of them described how there was a real awareness in the group that I don't need to push because I know the best in the world is right next to me, that this is the best in the world right here. So I don't need to go beyond that. There was this real, they all felt somewhat comfortable. You know, if they're doing a run workout or a swim or bike, they didn't need to try and do a bravado one off the front in any discipline because they're like, hang on, I know I'm already with the best in the world. This is the level. I'm at the level. If I can just be amongst it, I'm going to be comfortable. And, and I remember Vincent said, you know, when I crossed the line at the San Grand Final of the IT World Series and won the World Series last year, he said, look, I was asking him how he truly felt. And he said, actually, I felt bad at first. I didn't know, you know, Mario had finished in front of him in that race, but then, you know, finished second in the World Series. And he was kind of explaining the fact that Mario had you know, let him come into the team or you you and Mario, I guess, had made a conscious decision to let Vincent into the into the squad and and he kind of felt bad. Well, here he was, you know, nobody's won four in a row World Series, I guess, and, and, and Mario had won three in a row and he felt kind of bad and he said he went up to Mario and sort of said right at the finishing line and said, you know, I'm sorry, mate. And, and Mario just, you know, said, mate, go and enjoy it. You deserve it. You know, and it was just, he said, oh, it was a release that I needed to actually go and enjoy it. I couldn't, I couldn't enjoy it until I had the permission almost for, from Mario. And I think creating that kind of um, that bonding that you guys have within the the group is something that 
yes, you're getting performances now, but I think it's going to live with all of you for forever. You know, it's like these strong bonds where you 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 all want the very very best for each other, and and that's what makes it makes the group so powerful. Um, so just congrats to everything you're doing on that, mate. It's um, absolutely brilliant because I know it's not easy. I know the personalities of professional triathletes. I mean, you've worked with some some big personalities in the sport um, and I know it's not easy. So I, I congratulate you on that. And um, what, what I want to do is I, I'd actually just like to wind the clock back a little bit and ask you, when did you sort of find you, your passion for in, endurance sports? And, um, you know, I think, you know, you're an athlete in your early days and then transitioning to coach. Um, so tell me a little bit about that background. Yeah, I think I think it comes from my father was a cyclist, just a recreational cyclist. But I got involved when I was young in the cycling club, and and the cycling club uh, held a triathlon, and and so I did that without particularly training on it. I would have been eleven or twelve, and then uh, that kind of led into uh, the Kids of Steel triathlon series in in Ontario and Canada, and uh, you know I I started competing. Um, you know, 13, 14 age group and, and moving up from there, um, eventually uh, uh, raced um, Junior Worlds in um, in Cleveland in 1996. Mm. I, I wasn't a, a great level, but um, certainly a, appreciative of the opportunities in the sport at the early stages before there was like uh, high standards for selection and funding and all of this. If, if, if that had been in place when I was doing it, I probably wouldn't be talking to you now so um and then i got hooked up um with with barry shepley a famous voice of the itu and and coach at the time and his his club in ontario and and that kind of opened the door a bit to high performance um um, i could see that my career wasn't going to go too far um you know uh, as i say it wasn't a great level but you know uh, one thing led to another, and I started traveling around uh, to races a bit wider than Ontario and, and some international races, and eventually um, ended up in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, uh, where our uh, path first crossed, uh, just after Simon Whitfield had won uh, in Sydney. And um, and that was really the start of understanding what um, real coaching and proper coaching would be, being on deck. And, uh, and I was fortunate enough to be given an opportunity as I guess an apprentice coach at the time, and um, and, and that was that was really the the start. And uh, you know, I, I guess it was a case of taking the opportunities as they came. You know, I didn't necessarily set out to have a, a grand plan of of how I would uh, move into coaching and different levels of coaching, but you know, took took the move across Canada to Victoria, which is quite a long way um, from Ontario. I, I drove across the country uh, to to really immerse myself in that that post Sydney Olympics environment with Simon and, and, um, Peter Reed was out there. Uh, I mean, it was, it, it was, and is a great triathlon community. And, and that's where I, I learned a lot more about high performance and, and the opportunities that came after. Mm. It was funny. I do remember that, uh, you know, I was obviously with Simon leading into the 2000 Olympics and, uh, and that whole, that whole time in Victoria, Canada, and the explosion of him winning the Olympic gold in Canada for Canada, sorry, uh, it really was a. It kind of stimulated the whole triathlon um, world, if you like, for Victoria, Canada, especially where where Simon was based, and and um, you know 
my wife Laura and I were based and and I remember we, we you and I we went to dinner several times during that you know the little sushi place wasn't it remember that sushi boat place we went to several times and and you were a young guy but you were so passionate and curious and wanting to learn more and and I think you were like a sponge and and somebody that I think just grew with the sport uh, and like you said took the opportunities as they came but it was um uh, it's been great to just watch your process. And, and I guess my next sort of question is, you know, you've got to this point where you are now over this last 20 years and who, who would you say that have been your sort of biggest influences for your coaching style? Um, you know, for me, when I look back, it's kind of like Arthur Lydiard and then I did some work with Brett Sutton and Emil Zadepec type work. But is there anybody that's influenced you more than others for the way you're coaching? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting uh, question, and and we're a, we're a young sport. We don't necessarily or haven't had sort of the 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 older, wiser triathlon coaches. There have been a few, but it's it's not like swimming or athletics, uh, as you say. And and when I reflect on that, I, I I reflect on the relationships that I've had with the athletes and and learning from the athletes. Um, you know, Simon and working with Simon and, and yourself and that environment in Victoria had had a huge influence and and you know lasting to this day of how do you work with athletes who have a lot of experience who have a, a history of success and you know I think it necessitates approaching it like a partnership and um, you know not always of equals it could be a case of the athlete uh, has much more experience but you know, can we find a way to to work together to add value together? And and that's been influential. You know, I, through all my coaching pathway is is that understanding. And it was, you know, as I said, grateful to have that opportunity. I didn't plan to, and I probably didn't even recognize it so much at the time. But but it was what we had to do in order to find a way forward. Um, and 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 that that concept of as a partnership, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a situation as a coach where I'm dictating the plan and the athlete must follow it. And there's an authority structure and such. It's much more, we agree to work together. We think there's some ways to add value here and to, you know, to improve and, um, and, and we're going to be part of that process, you know, every step of the way together. And that's different for every athlete, how exactly that looks, but but still that's my my the way that i look at those relationships and you know as as a as a real partnership and and as one where there's ownership on both sides and um you know all through the steps you know that's how i've thought about it and so those influences from the early days uh, have carried with me and um you know in terms of the training that's changed over time i think i've been you know, I reflect on all the different kind of experience. Again, what what have I done with athletes at work? What mistakes did I make? Often, it's the the mistakes and the and the bad decisions that I made that that um, are the best way to learn. But but having observed other athletes and worked with a number of athletes over time, I think it feels like each each opportunity to to learn and work with an athlete specifically to what they need and and what are the demands of the sport of the the what level are they at that's been a layer on layer of learning and um so it's not so much just from you know coaching model or training model i suppose you know the the ones that i have identified with to some degree perhaps lydiard as you said i i appreciate that that way of thinking and 
but I've, I've tried to find my own way based on the experience with with all the different athletes over time. You know, from from working there in Canada to my time in in Great Britain and um, the athletes that were on the rise then and and, and to now. Um, I think I've developed sort of a model that's a way of thinking. Um, while it's slightly different for every individual, you know, like the the training model, if you like, has has definitely evolved over time. I, I did think the other day, you know, what have I taken with me in terms of training practice from from those days? I think that's changed a lot in terms of how how do we do the training? What is the training model? the way of working is is more what i've taken from from that time the way of working with people the way i, th- I think about high performance uh, but but the actual training that's evolved a lot over time and been able to refine that uh you know year after year um, even now i i think well we repeat a lot of the same things um every year a lot of the same kind of workouts the same kind of build up i tried to find the 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 subtleties of how we can continue to evolve um, and, and it's that evolution over time, I think, that that's, I've been able to refine to try to apply to different individuals and try to find success with that. Mm, it's funny, you know, you when you're looking at your training and, and consistency that you mentioned, and, and but the sustainability of that and and then trying to adapt as you go. It's like just as you find a great routine and something that's really working out wonderfully, you know, everybody's a year older or a year more experienced or, or need to adapt to different environments or different competition or you got to step up to another level and you got to keep reinventing yourself and and that's that's the the exciting thing but also the tricky thing about coaching and being an athlete it's kind of how do you try and always stay one step in front and you know with the learning that you've had whether it be preparing Simon Whitfield um, who was a well-established athlete by the time you picked him up, still a young guy, but a fairly well-established and knew what he kind of wanted. I think you were probably dealing with a fairly strong personality at times and having to manage that and both sort of work together in that marriage before the 2008 Olympics where, you know, he had that phenomenal race to come second to Jan Fredino. And then going into that British program um, that, you know, with the 2012 Olympics being home in London for the Brownlee brothers and everything else and, I'm not sure to what degree or how much you're involved with all of that, but I, I know you were, I think you were the head coach during that time. Um, so there's a lot of big personalities just in that window where you're having to probably step back sometimes and learn how to work with these. It's, it's different than a coach working with an 18-year-old kid and then working with them for 10 to 15 years and building with them. You know, you've put yourself into some environments where these guys are already rock stars in our little world of triathlon but and you've come on and uh had to mold yourself and give to them but also sort of learn how they're operating would you agree with that Uh, absolutely and i think that that's you know certainly working with simon was challenging i mean as the former olympic champion and and all the success that he had and influence in the program I, i had to adapt you know the the right style to to try to get the most out of him and, and that environment and and that and that's changed when I was in um, in in working as the head coach of British triathlon it wasn't a direct coaching role uh, which was pretty different 
but still had to work with challenging uh, people, you know, um, whether that be Alistair or, or Helen Jenkins or, you know, any athletes, you know, that are successful are, are challenging in their own ways. And I, and I know sometimes um, it's easy to sort of grumble about difficult athletes, but I, but I think that's the job. That is high performance. You know, high performing people are not always easy to, to manage and work with and finding a way to work with different uh, people um, and get the most out of them uh, is, is I think, you know, what you want as, as a coach. You know, I think what's what the goal in coaching is to get the most out of every athlete that you have the opportunity to work with or every person. And, um, and so, you, you know, there, while there's a common um, perhaps worldview, a common model of, of thinking, it's still about the individual and it's, and it's about getting the most out of that. And so I think that's where those formational relationships and the, and the start where I, where I had to, to, adapt my style um, has, has served me well. And again, a bit lucky that those were the opportunities I had to grow. But I think also my, my personality is, is towards that direction anyway. I'm, I'm not somebody that, that needs to dominate or be the center of attention. And, um, and that's probably helped in some of those situations where I was able to, to be in the background, happy to be in the background. Obviously, you know, the athlete is the one that goes out and performs and responsible for, for, the vast majority of the success they have. Um, and, you know, I certainly recognize that. And, and, you know, I see the job as is primarily the, the support structure in the background to help them uh, optimize themselves to, to go out and, and, and express their, the work that they've done. Yeah, it's it's not an easy role, this, this coaching role. And uh, we often laugh about it. I think Pete Coulson put it best. Uh, he, he was married to Makili Jones, you know, former world champion and silver medalist at the Sydney Olympics. And he said, the coaching role is basically when the athlete does well, it was all because the athlete did such great work. I mean, the athlete does poorly. It's always the coach's fault. So it's like you you never get the true pats on the back. I mean, I think you're getting some now with some, some success that you've had, but it's, it's a, it's a tricky little position and it's certainly not a role for anybody that has a large ego um, because you don't, if you go into coaching for the pats on the back and, and the ego side of things, you really you're not going to be rewarded. It's not a place for that. It, it does take a certain personality that's prepared to just be there and want to support the athletes hit their performances and, and take great joy from that. You know, it's a. I think even the athletes that I've coached, um, you know, whether it be my wife Laura or a number of others, it's. I've actually found it almost more joyous to see them be successful than it was a lot of my own success. There is something very gratifying about helping others um, achieve their goals and their targets and everything else. And uh, I want to move on to a little bit and just the team that you've created at um, within the Joel Filial crew, um, you've built a a pretty strong team. Just tell me about the, the people that are helping keep this all together and help the athletes reaching where they want to get to. Yeah, uh, it, it's um, it's evolved over time. I mean, it started off basically um, just me, uh, but but I, I was looking at um, how, how do we grow and is what is what is the scope to make this like a, a, a more professional operation and you know with but without having necessarily resources of, of a federation. So basically, how it works it's it's a, it's a private squad. So we perhaps receive some funding via 
some of the athletes depending on their level, but essentially we don't have a budget to work with. And, and I could see, um, what Darren Smith was doing at the time, uh, you know, or before, before me, but I was observing what he was doing and, and he, uh, sought a, a physio or a therapist that could, that could work with the athletes and considering the model of, of, that we were moving around in different places and you, you know, the fundamental principle is keep, keep the athletes healthy so they can continue to train consistently and therefore go and perform, you know, how could we invest in, in, in therapy, uh, as, as a way to have some insurance about that. So we, we tried a, a couple of different people and the, the challenge was always, um, who could commit to the lifestyle of, of living in hotels and traveling around. And, and it's not for everybody. It's, it's difficult. And uh, eventually we came across, um, uh, a Spanish fellow called Jose Miota, uh, Pepe to us. And, uh, and he's been with us for the last several years, um, say about five, six years. And, and he's been following the path with the athletes and with me through that time. And, and that kind of partnership, I think has been instrumental to success. He's, he's both, a you know, a therapist, but also ends up, uh, you know, there's always a, a psychological component to therapy, talking about how they're doing and, uh, as they're on the treatment bed and and then he and I talk and you know try to anticipate the decisions we'll need to make the you know I think fundamentally to success um, to be consistent and, and successful performances are are making good decisions every day you know and in, in, in a squad of athletes on any given day there are a number of decisions we have to make and usually it's about you know how fatigued are they do they do we need to change from what we had planned? And so working and talking with Pepe every day in training camp, uh, we could try to make better decisions, you know, uh, and avoid problems, avoid, um, you know, injury problems as they come up. So, so Pepe has been a big part of that process. Um, later on, we, we've um, had uh, some, some different assistant um, coaches and the thought, you know, how, how do I, how do I grow our capacity to to have individual as enough individual approach and um, and an Australian called uh, Drew Box who who was an athlete first with the squad and and eventually um, decided he wanted to move into coaching and it was the perfect opportunity to to take on an apprentice uh, uh, and and uh, and that and he's added a huge value over the last years as well in in our in our in staff if you like and in supporting the athletes. Uh, and he, you know, like every coach, they bring their own perspective, and and a, and a young coach brings their, you know, particularly an a, one who was in the squad brings their own perspective, and and that's helped uh, uh, continue to make good decisions, continue to have success. So, you know, the the th- the three of us have 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 been part of the squad the last years, and and forming that support network, um, and and. Since I should say, since the the Rio cycle, so after the Rio Olympics, I also took the post with the Italian Triathlon Federation, and that's I, w- I say that's my primary job now is is the is the performance director for the Italian Federation, and and that came about talking with the the president of the Italian Federation about bringing sort of the best in the world to Italian athletes, and and that was his his idea and and creating a synergy there, and and that support um on on both sides both from from helping uh, me create a structure around the athletes and and incorporating some italian athletes directly and also indirectly has been a big part of that underpinning success as well it gives us a a kind of stability and also 
gives us access to other support. Um, you know, I, I can work with young Italian coaches and, and that's been important also to underpin not only the success of the Italian athletes, but the environment we have. So, so, you know, both of those things together have, have grown over, over time. And, and certainly in the last four years, so from the Rio Olympics to now, um, that's been part of how we've been able to find the success we've found. It's a really great mutual beneficial relationship, that one. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Largely what this show is about is, you know, for me in my own experience, it was always to learn and surround yourself with the very, very best. So the president of the international, uh, the Italian Federation has done a great job to say, look, here are my athletes. Now, where are the best athletes in the world? Oh, they're in their one squad. <laughs> Let's bring over that head coach. And for you, it's worked because you get that stability that you guys needed um, and the support structure that you want. So it's that that's a, a really interesting sort of way to go and I think it's it's very clever when I, when, when I hear things like that I'm always like great people are really forward thinking and, and it's very well um, put in place I just want to move on to probably what a lot of the listeners are really craving to hear a bit more about is and that is your your overall training structure and for me I've been just so impressed so amazed how consistent your athletes have been for well since you 2012 really since you've had your own squad and the consistency at the top level not just year in year out but through each season from you know the first race often in Abu Dhabi in March all the way through to the the grand final often in September and the ability to keep showing up in both the men's and women's racing and the very few injuries or illnesses that I ever hear coming out um you know, of your team. And, and that fascinates me for a sport in which we tend to be on the knife's edge the entire time. And we're, we're basically one step from, from, you know, a niggle or an injury that's going to take us out for a couple of months. But you've been able to manage not just one athlete, but a multitude of athletes for so many years. And so what is it that you guys are doing that's allowing you guys to perform at such a high level consistently? Yeah, I think one of the things that that um, has changed uh, is is the series, uh, as you referenced. So to to you know, now that the ITU World Champion is is crowned uh, basically the winner of the series, uh, that's now the demand. You have to be good from the first race to the last race, and so uh, so we set out to you know to figure out how to do that. And and one concept that's resonated over time. Um, that I probably come to a little bit afterwards, but then look backwards and say, yeah, I think that's probably what we were trying to do is, is find the, the minimum effective dose of training. So what, and, and when I first think to myself, when I hear myself say that minimum, I think, well, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't sound very high performance. It doesn't sound what you need to win, but what is the, the level of training workload that it, the athletes can sustain that, um, that, is it enables them to be consistent and and that gets the performance we want and how that's evolved over time 
probably is less uh, focus on kind of race pace and race specific work and and I think more emphasis on the foundational work the 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 meat and potatoes endurance work that's not very exciting it's not very fast but I think it's foundational to to having success through the season in fact needing to revisit that through the season so I think that the early models of triathlon as I knew it you know, we would we would prepare for the first race and and start. You know, as we got closer to the first race, we would want to do specific training to be prepared, and then we would sort of stay in that mode of specific training as we go from race to race. And I found it seemed to wear a lot of athletes down. You know, they reach the end of the season and and be sort of gasping. You know, on whatever fitness they they had left. Um, and and so how I've changed that over time is. First of all, the the specific periods, you know, race pace work, runs off the bike, uh, threshold training are a lot shorter than I used to do. And and even probably have refined that, making it shorter and shorter every year. And and the more general training, um, which it doesn't mean easy, but but you know, under threshold um type work. Uh, that that is a greater percentage of I think the 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 training um, model, and then revisiting that through the season. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, if we don't decide necessarily, of course, what the the calendar uh, of of races to do is, I mean, that's one of the changes. Uh, the last uh, eight to ten years is is the the demands of the series means it's hard to race a lot of other races. So. You know, when the World Series is announced, you know, that's pretty much the schedule of races we're going to do uh, without without anything else, t- typically. And so we've got to find ways to build in sort of retraining into that season. So revisiting, revisiting the, the basic work. Um, I think it, primarily the driver of that, I think, is... Um, that that race pace work and race intensity work race preparation work uh, is kind of toxic meaning t- too much um, is not sustainable too much makes you sick in a way or not able to continue to progress and and it's like figuring well what's the minimum amount that we can do that will get us ready to race and and where does that race fitness come from and I often notice this I mean I'm aware of it every every year the first time we decide we're going to run off the bike and um, and we see the speeds the guys are able to uh, to to hit in in the first runoff. So we've not trained this; just coming from their run training is already faster than they need to go um, in in a race in any race. And so again, I kind of come back to well, what are we training there? Well, we're certainly expressing something, and and good for the confidence. And and some athletes might need a little bit more than that than others, as an example of specific training. Mm-hmm. But but we've trained that through our through our other phases that they're able to do that. So and the other phases are are more sustainable. There, you know, we're we're not a. Uh, when we're talking about minimal effective dose, I mean, not only just the intensity, but it's like, well, what's the sweet spot for, for our model of training? And I kind of think we're in, we're in the middle. We're not extreme volume. Um, you know, it's not 35, 40 hours a week, it's, but it's not 15 or 20. It's, you know, that 25 to 30 hours a week. Can we do that consistently and, and build the foundation for the year? And And also the part that's connected to this is, Training in a sustainable way in that minimal effective dose model, uh, if you like, means that we don't work so close to the razor's edge that we need to take a lot of planned rest within those 
within that training model. Mm. So we don't follow, um, you know, a traditional periodization in the sense of, uh, you know, one, two, three weeks of building progressively and then one week recovery. It, it's more monotonous in a way. It's every week is a gradual progression, but subtly over the last and we just continue like that through through the winter or through the the main training period. So it, it's, I guess, p- pulling down the peak, making it more sustainable and really managing how much race-specific work it is, acknowledging that the stress that that puts on the system can affect their them, them over the, you know, the sustainability of that over the long term and, and figure out what's the right amount, mm. you know, and, and not being sort of macho or egotistical about doing more just because, you know, um, because we, okay, we want to be the best. We want to compete with the very best, but we know that the best aren't the ones that necessarily train the most or train the hardest. Okay. Well, what, what does it mean to be smart then? Well, then it comes back to this, this model, I think that I've arrived at through trial and error and, and, um, and, and coming back to where we started is, well, what do we reinforce in that training environment? And in this model, we don't reinforce or, or emphasize, you know, going faster all the time. We go, we, we emphasize or, or talk about doing the right amount or the right intensity uh, for the individual. You know, um, what, what's the right speed we're going to run uh, for a session and, and let's run to that speed and not faster. And I think in that way, we, we've been able to find some consistency. Um, it, it's something that is, takes time to build up to. Um, you know, when I, when I first uh, start to work with a new athlete, I often find that, uh, well, at the beginning, they might find, oh, this this is kind of easy. I can do this. And then, you know, week two, three, four, five, six, now it now it's a lot harder. and And some have taken a lot longer to build the the capacity to manage that. But eventually, when they were able to manage that, um, then we find that consistency. And you know the an athlete that comes to mind is um, a young Australian called Jake Bertwhistle, who, uh, joined us after um, after the Rio Games, a bit, bit, but perhaps the next year after that. And um, the first year, he was able to do you know most of the work, um, but we had to build in a little bit more recovery. You know, not a huge amount, but a little bit more. He's a bit younger than some of the other guys, and we could see though year on year his ability to manage that level of program has has grown a huge amount, and and to the point where. Last year, he, he was the only male to win two World Series uh, and has been on the podium uh, of the overall uh, World Series as well as you know, being a, a younger guy without the same history as the others. And it illustrate you know, that as an example of we had to get it right at first. You know, There's no point in him just pushing through doing training that he wasn't yet able to absorb and, and yet able to recover from, but eventually found, I think, the, the strength to to adapt and to um, get into that flow, that rhythm of, of what we're talking about. What's the the minimum dose for each individual that gets them ready to perform? Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's taken time. It's, it's a trial and error. It's slightly different for every athlete, but it's still the same kind of model. You know, the same way of thinking, the same way of working, and um, it's one that I, I reflect a lot about and tweak here and there and. You know, it, it, it's one that it, I don't want to be complacent. I don't want to think, well, now I've got it all figured out and, <laughs> you know, I can just reapply this because, uh, of course, that doesn't work in sport. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, but it's like I also don't want to 
change too much. And I, I've been that place before where I felt like, well, you know, we're doing the same thing. It really should change things up. And I, I've made mistakes before where I've made too many changes. So I think the last years have been about refinement of that model and, and re- refinement for each individual and probably growing confidence in doing a bit less. And that's a, it's a hard thing in the current environment of social media, of Strava, of, you know, <laughs> you know, everybody knowing everybody else's training. I mean, we never had to deal with that, you know, in years ago that we never didn't, you kind of knew what some people were doing, but not really. And then over time, as we've learned more and more, it creates a kind of, you know, paranoia or some, somebody coined, and I picked this up, this Stravanoia, you know, what are other people doing in like mega training, super hard, super fast. And, um, you know, and I think that's a challenge for sort of the, the modern athlete now is how do you filter that out? How do you not lose confidence in in your process and what's right for you because again it's it's so easy just for an athlete to go off and and do too much and you know they're superheroes for a couple of weeks and then they're they're broken or or they're exhausted or or injured and we don't want that we know those are the kind of things we want to avoid but in in you know so we're a bit fortunate that we've been able to build um this model and because we've been uh able to demonstrate success with other athletes following this model in this environment, it's going to be easier to onboard other athletes to that because they see, hey, look, this works. Um, it's maybe less than than it, I used to do. You know, in the case of uh, Vincent, um, you know, previously he was running a lot, a lot of Ks. And, um, you know, so some of the training that he was doing was half um, his previous running volume, for example, and maybe a bit more focus on the bike and a bit more recovery and and, you know, it took him some time, as it would any athlete, to kind of find their confidence in that model. And ultimately, they've got to go out and prove it to themselves. Uh, but we do have that, that sort of built-in advantage of, of having had success with others, and they see that, they follow, and eventually they've got to see it for themselves. Um, but, but that's kind of where, where it's coming from. We're, we're searching for that consistency. We're searching for that sustainability uh, we're 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 trying to do the right amount, uh, but not more. And it's like a it's it's not a fixed thing. It's a it's a mental model of thinking. Um, it's not like there's an exact amount of intensity or volume because no two situations are exactly the same. You know that they move the dates, they move races, the timing, the place. Uh, but we try to apply that in the, in the same way. And um, I think for that reason, kind of filtering out you know, some of what's going on in the rest of the world and, and focusing on what's the next step in front of this athlete, what's the right amount for them uh, that moves them in forward uh, so that they arrive at races uh, with with bullets to fire. You know, I think this, I like this um, analogy of, you know, there's no use arriving at a race and you already fired all your, your bullets in training, you know, meaning, you know, too many sessions where you went to the well or too many sessions where you tried to prove something to yourself in search of confidence. And, um, you know, I know many athletes that have had uh, incredible performances in training that we don't see in races. And that's the antithesis of what we're trying to do. We're trying to save our amazing performances for racing and model the training in a way so that they're arriving at races uh, ready to fire. And the, touching on that, that's exactly what you're doing with the team culture that I'm, I've talked about with a squad environment. And when I look back at my career and it was, you know, when I came out of squads, I, 
I think sometimes I'd become a very good trainer and I wasn't adapted to racing. I'd, I kind of, like you said, I'd fired all my bullets and it wasn't until I did a, I, I kind of started coaching myself and, and Laura and we started doing a lot of homework and we, you know, we both touched on, you know, Arthur Lydiard. I read so much of his type of work. I trained under Brett Sutton. I had some concept and ideas from him and Emil Zadepec, but it was really this coming along with the concept that speed kills you need to do it every now and then, but but in my mind it was speed kills. And you touched on briefly, you know, when we're talking about these athletes, these elite athletes running a 10K in 29 minutes to 30-minute window, okay, for these guys to run a 255K to three-minute K pace, to do one of them is not hard at all. They could do that any time of year pretty much. It's not that hard. The key is to figure out how do I do it 10 times back-to-back having a little bit of fatigue in the body from the swim and bike as well. And that's when I remember sitting down with Laura and just going, look, it's not about running faster. I need to try and just get fitter. I need to be so aerobically fit that I can sprint the 10K and not worry about failing. And that's where I started incorporating, you know, the two-hour long run every week, whether I was racing or not racing, for years. I didn't change it, just the two-hour. And I do that at what we, we we termed, Laura and I termed, best easy pace. And so it wasn't slow. Um, some days it might be, but generally speaking, it would be up to around that sort of 3 minute 40 to 3 minute 45 type K pace. And I remember that if I could get to that point aerobically to some degree, and now look, I did, wasn't wearing heart rate monitors and maybe it was even too fast at times, um, and I did get injured, so I'm sure it was too fast at times, but the, the idea behind it, was to just build this aerobic engine so I wouldn't falter. In, in And it wasn't about the speed. I knew that I may not be the quickest guy over the first 500 or K out of transition, but I'll I'll, I'll own them by the end of the, the 10K. And, and that was the way we trained our swim, bike, and run. And that sounds to me very much like what you guys are doing. I think when I look back at mine, I did still too much speed and a lot of that was training on my own and thinking I had to do more, more, more and 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 lacking that confidence in myself, which, which again, like you're saying with your athletes, it kind of grows the more you kind of do this work. Um, but I, I've got to laugh when you – I just last week had Sebastian Kinlay on the podcast and, and uh, we were both laughing how the amount of data and information we get from all these other athletes on social media – and and we're both scratching our heads going, well, how do we win races when we know they were producing far, far better numbers than, than us anyway, whether that be VO2 max, whether it be what's on the bike or speed they're doing on a treadmill or their track workouts. It's like, how are we even competitive with these guys? You know, And it's like you said, they, they do it one-off and they show this one-off workout. They don't have that consistent, frequent type training model that just gets them very, very, very fit um, and sustainable throughout the whole year um just a, a fascinating you know 15 minutes you gave me there and, and i'm gonna have to go back and replay it for myself because you've just got so much information there when when it comes to the aerobic versus intensity kind of model and looking at a week are you prepared to tell me sort of what a week would look like and how much running and biking and swimming or how many intense workouts you would do for each of those yeah absolutely i mean i think that you know, connecting those those dots, you know, what, what you said, I think success in triathlon, despite the changes in the sport, is still primarily about the fittest, the strongest, and the freshest. And um, it's, I don't think it's changed that much in that way. Even down to Super League, you know, we, we've had athletes win 
a lot of super league races off of you know without a real specific training for that um and it comes down to that you know aerobic fitness strength resistance to fatigue you know be, being fast only matters if you get to the sprint and you're still in the game so you know and, and that's and that's the hurdle that the vast majority they never get to the sprint you know they've they got blown off well before that so you know our our, our model is one that you would see in a lot of places around the world where we typically run uh, main sessions twice a week the tuesday and saturday main sessions it's it's something that that it's a, mo- a staple here in the UK. It's a staple in a lot of places. There's nothing special about that. Um, we we might run a more uh, a longer duration type of reps on a Saturday and shorter, faster stuff on a Tuesday. Typically, um, that could progress from just strides to to longer stuff. So typically, it, for our running, everything just progresses over time, step by step. There's there's nothing particularly interesting about that kind of progression it, it it's somewhat arbitrary but just slightly more uh volume of work uh, as the weeks go by so you know one of the you know when i reflect on different athletes it's how fast you can go or the quality you can go under fatigue kind of tells us i think more like how you're going to race so when under the chronic load that gets higher uh, that's where you start to see the differences, and of course, why what we try to avoid as coaches is is pushing too too hard before they're ready. But you know, so that that twice a week model of of main run sessions and and the cycling typically follows that as well. You know, two main uh, uh, cycle focus sessions per week, and um, of course, the frequency of all of the other days. Um, fills that in uh that you know i I wouldn't say that the success comes from you know the particular kinds of sessions or uh or or necessarily you know what we're doing on those sessions but the progression over time i think is important we we leave somewhere to grow you know we don't do our biggest workouts at the beginning of the year and then just try to sustain that we just gradually add a layer on another layer on another layer um and then uh, the the swimming we typically as well do two hard sessions a week um, and that could be Tuesday and Friday and um, so that that model of two main sessions where there's some more quality um, is is how is how we go through the year in the winter maybe it's one session or or slightly smaller sessions uh, or or a different focus hills instead of paceline work on the bike you know that, that a change of focus. But we, we tried to control that intensity. And then we, we swim six days a week. Um, we've, we've done various things in terms of volume over the years, but f- I think try to find a sweet spot of, of main sessions and, and volume. So that can be you know, between 25 and 30 Ks a week uh, in the pool. The, the hours in the bike can be as few as eight to as high as 16, depending on the time of year and what, and what we're doing. And then the running... Uh, you know, I tend to think in Ks for the running, you know, it can be as few as 50 to 60 K for some that are more um, prone to problems with higher volume to, to uh, 100, 110, uh, not typically much more than that. Um, one thing that's changed over the last maybe six years is the type of um, bike courses we have in racing. Uh, put a bit more demand on the bike so we've had to adapt a little bit the training to that um and uh you know the the type of of cycle training and the focus on the bike um 
I like to uh, to think of the you know the number of corners that the technical nature of the bike has, has changed in increasing the demand. Uh, so we've adapted that. So I, I think we're at the middle of the road in terms of volume and, and how and and the type of sessions we're doing. Um, I, you know, I think there's nothing particularly special about that. It's more about how we manage uh, the decisions along the way for each individual within that concept. And are you doing a, a long run? I mean, the the Saturday and Tuesday. Do you do longer runs over an hour, or what? What are the kind of miles that they're doing for that? Yeah, we, I like what we've evolved to over time. Um, is the the Saturday run session is also a long run, so we we um, will have uh, you know it could be um, an hour thirty to an hour forty five, pushing two hours um, depending on the session and where we are. Um, but it includes a session during that, so uh, you know it could be a tempo run, a build run, it could be uh, a workout and a long run at, uh, as part of one. Uh, and then we add volume via double runs um, for the, for certain athletes, and so you know it could be it could be easily you know a thirty to thirty five k day on a Saturday depending on where we're at and 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 the individual athlete. Again, uh, it's not a rule for everybody, but certainly the ones that can handle a bit more. Uh, and then we, we might have double runs other days, you know, a Tuesday or Thursday double run as a, as a safer way to increase volume or to have a bit higher volume and, and, and frequency wise. Um, and again, that depends on the athlete. You know, I think the right run program has got to be individually the, what they can sustain and what they can sustain, you know, with health, we want to avoid, uh, uh, bone problems. We want to avoid other injury problems that are just so easy to do with, with running with these guys that are, can be so, uh, centrally fit. Um, you know, so it, it takes time to, to build that up, but, um, yeah, so it's a middle of the road, I think, you know, and, um, I'm thinking, you know, again, what's sustainable, what's right for the individual, what's the minimum dose, but, but we're still, we're pushing the, the stress for them to adapt. And so the big one, the big one, when it comes to this, especially the world series type racing is the tapering and getting them ready to, to really fire that bullet. Like you said, H how have you implemented, is it, do you look at each athlete differently or do you have a kind of a, a set idea of how you like to taper in for these races? Yeah, there, there's a standard model. We, we typically follow a very similar type of race week with exact same kind of prep sessions that that has a structure, but also a, a, without holding to a particular standard. You know, we try to avoid the athletes getting worried whether, you know, their, their race pace sessions are faster or slower kind of as they're finally prepping into the race. But um, a, a standard structure, and of course, it depends on travel. Depends where you where you're coming from. The going to Hamburg is slightly different than going to Yokohama or whatever in terms of the race week. But it but it typically is just the race week and the weekend before could be a little different. And I guess what we try to do is make that predictable, so it's almost the same for every race. Not necessarily because okay, now we're at the grand final. There's other reasons why the final or you know another race will be a, a, a peak performance, if you like. But but I think that consistency, the predictability of following the same kind of plan prior to most races that we do, um, 
I think it gives them a familiarity that's comforting when they go to race week. Okay, we're going to do this. And we it's not exactly the same, but we have slightly different, you know, the last run session that we have two or three variations that we'll do. But over time, they know what they are and they know how to do them in a way that uh, is good for their confidence and and, and is is connected for them to preparing for the race. So, yeah, as I said, it, it's primarily what we do the weekend before and the race week. Uh, so that will be different prior to uh, when we're ready to race. And the other angle to that is, well, how long was the training block before that? Mm -hmm. If the training block was a very long one, you know, maybe we back it up a little bit before. If it's shorter, then, then um, you know, primarily race week. But but I, I tend to think in terms of, you know, how, how do we how do we get the athletes uh, able to have a predictable performance and connect that familiarity to to their to their racing performance and in that way it's it's fairly similar to every race it's it's not the idea of let's peak once a year but let's be good every time we race and we follow this pattern before we race mm. and it's a matter of tapering enough but also maintaining that that fitness that you want um to maintain to go to the next race and and that's always the the fine line i mean you obviously get a lot of fitness out of a race with that very high intense um workout i think it is it's another way to sort of boost that fitness to another level um but i mean that's why laura and i we would often you know call sort of that march april type races as pre-season we'd go in with with little taper because we just wanted to just get a hit out and see where things were just so we could manage the program going forward do you guys do that kind of a thing would you look at any early season races or because abu dhabi's in march it's just we've got to be fit for yeah. training just go <laughs> the last years yeah i mean the last six seven years abu dhabi's been pretty much the first race and and we want to be good and and usually we're, there isn't a, other options and so we haven't raced before mm. and uh over time i guess we've grown in confidence um to be able to do that to go right from the off season to to going very fast and and be you know feeling confident to be able to be in a position to to contend for the podium and win those races. So I think that's been part of this formula, but I guess it comes back to, you know, having confidence in your process and demonstrating to yourself and through your training mates and the environment that you can have success in that way. Um, so it's, that was a, a, a an evolution, I think, of previously having done a number of small races to uh, prior to uh, important races to incorporating that into training, but just enough, not too much. It's interesting. You seem like a coach that is very observant and very can can kind of see what each athlete needs. And you've taken the the science of coaching and it's turned it more into an art of coaching. And that's I think what separates you from probably many of the other coaches out there. I had um Christian Blumenfeld on the Norwegian athlete that won the grand final this year, and and his coach Arild. Um, and their squad, there's three of them, um, Gustav Eden, Christian Blumenfeld, and Casper um, Stone. They're doing very, very well with the Norwegian squad. Now, they seem to me to be one end of the spectrum in terms of data and science and lab testing. And you're, do you do much of that or are you kind of shifted away from that and per prefer just to be observant? Or how much sort of heart rate work and testing are you doing? Yeah, we're on the other end of the spectrum of that. <laughs> yes. I did, I, the other end of the spectrum meaning we do none, no testing, no lactate, no, <laughs> no, no formal like performance benchmarking in training. 
I, I, I like to think the the bet the only relevant measure of performance testing is the race itself, and of course you you are subject to if things can go wrong if you get a puncture then you don't find out but you know you come back to being confident in confident in your process and I didn't start out that way though I I started out you know back in when I think of those days in Victoria you know I had a lactate pro meter I was experimenting with all different things in in and I'm interested in sports science but I think what I, I've developed a, a better filter for what I think could be interesting in theory to what actually works in practice or what is my experience to make it work in practice and you know being better at saying no to things that could be interesting but you know could have unintended um consequences or unintended side effects and and you know the the sports science industry has exploded with all different ways you can enhance your performance and and there's a lot of validity to these things in isolation but it's figuring out well, what can you actually incorporate? What you know, because the risk is you you try to do something that may perhaps you don't quite understand or is new or or that has a, a negative side effects that could often affect the psychology of the athletes. And it's one of the things that I learned with a few athletes like Simon or or Alistair was um, not particularly like performance testing or lab testing. And so if you've got an athlete that doesn't benefit from that or doesn't gain from that then better figure out a way to to do your process without that because you could just end up um uh, worse off you know than than you started and the other part that i always ask myself is having this information or having more information how is it going to help me make better decisions mm. what am i going to do differently if i learn this information and uh, sometimes it could be something, but often what you think you might learn and the reality of what you're actually going to do differently don't line up. So I've tried to be a, a filter with this and, and, and simplify our approach. And it, I suppose it's also been by necessity because if you don't have a lot of resources, if you don't have a physiologist or a budget to buy all these toys, then you can't do them. So you better, better find a way mm. to be successful without that. And I think endurance sport at its core is simple. Um, I think some of these things are a great way to add value and add something, but you don't necessarily need them. And I, uh, and that's kind of the ethos that I've built up over time out of necessity. Um, and um, I like to look at the commonalities though of success in endurance sport and, you know, okay, well, the Norwegians are on one side in terms of testing, but they do a lot of hours, they work hard, they do a lot of sub-threshold work. And, um, and, you know, when, when I look at them and other athletes of what I can learn from them and, you know, perhaps, you know, that that's perhaps where the success is coming from and not necessarily because of all the other things that they're doing or others doing. Not to say that there isn't something to learn there. I think we need an open mind in terms of approach and, you know, you don't want to be closed off and think you've got it all figured out. But at the same time, it's like, well, what what is essential here? What, what it, If we boil down what different athletes are doing, what are the commonalities and um, and how do we apply that to our context? How do I apply that to my guys? What can I what can I do, or what should I not do? And we've experimented with diff some different things. Like you know, one of the things was swimming power meters. You know, this is a new thing. You see, is accelerometers that are accessible and in every device now. Um, everybody's got an accelerometer now. And it's like, well, how can we apply this to swimming? And we went through a phase of trying to figure that out, trying to learn and 
invested a lot of time and energy in the end, not sure <laughs> if, <laughs> if it made a difference or if it was, if it was a dead end. And, uh, but, it, but it costs time and energy to, to go down that road. And, you know, um, in another context, something else comes along, you know, I'll consider that kind of experience of w- what, what is the opportunity cost of doing, doing something, doing some study, doing some experiment. And I, I tend to think that the stuff that's really effective uh, will filter through to a wider population, like like power meters. You know, at the beginning, um, they were not so common. You know, only the three thousand um, plus dollar SRM, and now now everybody's got a power meter. And so, I tend not to worry about missing out on some of those things because I figure, you know, somebody else is going to figure out if it works or not, and I'm going to watch what they're doing. And then, if I think it's valuable, I'll adopt it. So, um, you know, endurance board is simple. You know, I think. You know, um, despite despite the the complex the desire to complexify what we do, at the core of it is is pretty simple. Um, and there are some things technology that can help us um, uh, do a better process. But but I think you don't need uh, a lot of um, a lot of toys to to do good endurance training. I love that endurance sport is simple. One of the things that we've kind of said is. You know, this whole big thing about marginal gains or it's the 1%, the 1%. I'm like, well, hang on. I think we've got so focused on the 1% that we're missing the 99%. We're missing the the consistent, frequent, solid work and that aerobic conditioning that, you, you know, you're talking about without so much intensity because that's where the toxins come in the body that's where we get injured illness and all those things come from and we need to be really careful with that and um but it really is simple and you got to be prepared to just do the day in day in day out work and like you said you know you're not taking any planned days off specifically and you're not doing planned weeks in a in what they used to term a periodized program which you know, things like three weeks on, one week off or anything. You're not doing anything like that. It's just this consistent stay fit, keep building it gradually over, over time. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. Are you working with your athletes at all with their their mental approach or do you let them do that themselves? Uh, I, I like to think that the psychology of training is is interwoven in everything that we do and everything that we say. Um, so it, it's always a part of that. That said, there are a time and place for some athletes who need a third party and could benefit from a third party to to help them uh, do that. And one of the athletes I think that's talked publicly about that is is Katie Zafaris, and she's benefited really tremendously from developing a relationship with somebody to help her manage all the pieces of 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 her sport. And and um, and there's other athletes where I mean that's. The messaging, the what's important, um, what do we need to focus on, how to handle different situations, that's part and parcel of the process every day. So, of course, that's something that all coaches need to be aware of and get better at and improve. You know, you, you could may, perhaps make an argument that if you want to be a, a coach in, in high performance, you should study psychology uh, at least as much or not if not more than than physiology right um mm. you know in the the difference makers the key moments in our sport it, well, in any sport or in any endeavor are often you know they're uh, to do with emotions they're to do with uh, psychology more than more than facts you know um uh, not always it's not always rational and, and figuring out a way to work with people in that context i think is is essential so it it, it depends on the individual depends on the context but but i do think it's 
not something that we can just um, uh, offload to somebody else. You know, I think there's a bit, a bit of in, in high performance like this, you know, integrated support teams and, you know, the wider team around the athletes that often come from, you know, Olympic uh, bodies and, and federations. But the, the, the risk of that is it becomes a bit of a tick box exercise. Like we got a psychologist on staff, yeah, ch- uh, tick. But are they really involved in the everyday? And, and the reality is almost no triathlon program can have that in a, in a daily level uh, to make a real impact. So, you, you know, uh, the coach and the people that are involved have to learn those skills. Mm-hmm. And um, some, it probably comes easier than others, but it's something that everyone can learn how to, how to, how to be better and more effective and um, how to handle the critical moments. You know, I think, again, as a coach, I think that, you know, there's these critical moments, these learning moments, uh, moments of influence that uh, you don't necessarily know when they're going to be, but you know if you handle them well, you you can make a positive impact, and if you handle them badly, uh, it can have all kinds of negative impacts. and And those can be right after races. Those can be, uh, you know, when when the big goals didn't happen, or or there were you know things fell apart, or it can be a bad training session. It can be dealing with injury. You know, all those 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 critical moments where your skills to navigate those. Um, can make all, all the difference, you know, and is probably often the difference between finding success and and not. It's, it's a fine balance. I used to say, you know, and this is where athletes are so unique and so different. You know, my wife Laura would have a bad race, and and she was able to sort of water off a duck's back almost and just get on with it, and it didn't affect her terribly much. And I used to say to her, I need my time to be disappointed i actually it meant something and it didn't happen and i put a lot into that and i used to put a time stamp on it though i'd be like look i need an i need two hours right after the race i'm happy to have a happy face as i cross the line for all my family and friends i think you know they mirror your they mirror you so if you cross the line all disappointed and, and you know pissed off then they are going to try and pump you up and it almost makes you feel worse so i always found the best way to cross the line no matter what happened have a smile on your face and just be like, oh, it wasn't my day. But I'd often go back to the hotel room and I'd say to Laura, look, I need a couple of hours to be just pissed off and I'd write down some notes or whatever it was. My point is with all of that is how unique and how different each athlete is and how as a coach you've got to kind of massage that gently for for each person and, and helping them deal with their emotions and their mental state Um is almost like you just got to take them one at a time. But I, I, I always put a timestamp on my disappointment because I wouldn't, I didn't want it to drag over any longer than it needed to be. I think it was the discipline to allow yourself to be disappointed to a point, and I'm like, okay, move on, next step. What do we do? Um, that's how I had to approach it. Whereas I think Laura was a little bit more easygoing about it. Um, she'd still be pissed off, but I don't think it affected her quite as deeply as it did, it did to me. Um, and you mentioned. Uh, you know, you almost need to be a psychologist more than a, a physiologist. And uh, I laugh at that because I, my wife, Laura, you know, has done a lot of nutritional work and numerous clients. And uh, I, I'm always telling you, it's more psychology than it is nutrition <laughs> working with these people because it's, you know, most of our behavior comes um, in the form of either we're depressed or we're happy or we're sad or whatever. And that affects everything else that we do in our life. And uh, on that, are you doing much with your athletes with nutrition? Again, it depends. It depends on the athlete. Um, Some, some have some great resources around them and, you know, it's like recognizing where, where being a generalist, like a, like a coach like myself 
you know, what's the limits to our knowledge and what's the, what can we implement? And then where, where do we need to get help? And it could be, um, it could be, you know, you know, for example, around um, eating issues uh, f- uh, for some um, women or or men in some cases, you know uh, how they how they see nutrition connected to their body image, to performance, to their confidence. You know that can be an area where having a a, a third party can make a, a really big positive difference. Uh, can mean about um, you know so, some of the stuff that's come up is um, around the preparation for t- a hot race like Tokyo. You know what what kind of and nutritional interventions could could be need to be different than normal, and then getting some some outside help on that. So it, that that's one where uh, we use the resources the, of the wider team around the athletes uh, often. Mm. Um, it's not something that I've necessarily developed a go to person myself, but according to the different contacts we have, you know, uh, for for each athlete, and it's something where. You know, a, an Olympic Federation can can pr- had have a have a value by having a you know somebody that's that's really world class available to the athletes, and um, often that does spill over from from one to the other. So if we get a great piece of advice from one from one Olympic committee, we might that might spill over into some of the other athletes. But but that's that's how I've seen it. It's like, well, what resources do we have access to? Um, keeping an open mind, uh, and and how do we solve individual problems? So you know. Um, always open to kind of learning from other experts and trying to figure out what what can I implement myself or what's better off left to somebody with a, a deeper domain knowledge and and maybe perhaps compartmentalized from the everyday environment mm-hmm. and um, and that's again where it, it's it's different you know it's different for different athletes and uh, according to their needs um, obviously it's important though in, in endurance sport we've got to fuel ourselves for for performance for success. Um, there are performance issues around body composition uh, in different directions. You know, can you produce enough power on the bike? Do you have enough energy balance to to be able to sprint and you know um, keep keep enough muscle mass through otherwise a you know a very catabolic process of endurance training? Uh, for some, that's been the issue as the sports evolved and become higher demand on the bike, and 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 often it's you know keeping energy balance so that you can do the training you want to do and recover. So. Um, you know, again, what stops our athletes, you know, from, from being consistent, from doing the training, uh, it can, can be nutritional issues. So it's important and it, and it's context dependent. Mm-hmm. And it's a difficult one. You don't want to get too involved. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a real struggle with some of the athletes because you don't want to overstep either. It's kind of like, you know, I'll stay to, <laughs> I'll stay in my lane to some degree. I mean, unless if you had an athlete that turned up on pool deck and was exhausted every day and you thought it was a nutritional issue then would you point them in the right direction to somebody yeah i mean the, the that that's actually not an uncommon one is is athletes that are not fueling themselves enough and um and you know and and that's where we've got first we've got to try to identify it but you know one of the things we see is when an athlete um loses the ability to change pace and you know they got like one speed and they're they're just kind of dragging um it's certainly worth asking asking questions you know what what's going on are you eating enough are you getting enough carbs are you getting different sources of carbs or or you know we certainly had athletes who um had got some ideas maybe that we didn't know about but you know maybe they've changed their nutrition um uh, make their composition of what they're eating you know they've they've gone to a a low carb diet and not said anything and um and then and it's had a kind of a short-term impact you know that kind of thing again it's the wider 
the wider world and the you know the explosion of of social media and experts and you know accessibility has a positive and a negative side and mm. do you see it come up a bit on the on on the, the nutrition side and psychology where athletes can have different ideas from different places that maybe are not compatible or that have unintended consequences that you know we we could discover via an indirect way that that they've gone down that road or if an athlete wants to become a you know a vegetarian for for all different reasons like well how how do we how do we manage that um and maybe getting some help in in that way and having that having that outsource can be the best way to deal with it mm. Mm. Fantastic, mate. Is there any sort of gear recommendations you can give? And 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 the, I guess the other question I had for you, are you coaching any age group amateur athletes at the moment or is it all focused on the the elites? Yeah, my 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 business is really narrowed uh, to to only really elite um and and primarily although I did a lot of work in Ironman for some years it's it's really now uh, olympic focused athletes I like to think it's the type of thinking could be applicable to any any discipline but mm. but it's it's really narrowed down and you know um I mean the the basics in terms of what it's nice to have if you use it in the right way. Of course, um, standard stuff like a, a, a watch that does GPS that we can get uploads and mm-hmm. and, and a power meter is, is nice to have. Uh, a working power meter because it seemed like uh, in any given week, uh, you know, I don't know, ten percent of the power meters are are without batteries or or some problem. But <laughs> you know, I, again, I like to keep it simple and, and accessible and and. Um, and and now those kind of devices, I mean, they're ubiquitous. Everybody has access to that, mm. and um, you know, I think it's like communication is is the is the technology that we tend to use. Whether you know the the amount of text messaging, um, you know, WhatsApp type thing, um, and now the absence of being able to see athletes from time uh, for for longer periods of time than um, you know using video a bit more than we might have otherwise has been useful just to see the athletes and and be able to talk um uh has 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 been uh, a value you know when i think again what what's the success going to come from here it's being able to communicate it's being able to understand each other and um okay all the data that we can have is part of doing that but the basics doing the fundamentals well is 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 understanding where the athletes at and what they need to do moving forward. Are, are your athletes using smart trainers and things like that at the moment? Are they on the different platforms, Be Cool, Zwift, or any of those things? Or are you guys going for group rides together just somewhere on a, on on that? Yeah, I mean, there's been like the informal meetups or they yeah. organize it themselves. But but absolutely, I mean, this has been uh, really interesting to to see the explosion of the smart trainers and how how much more interesting and more effective that is than the the uh, the devices of the past. You know, I used to have a compu trainer back in the day, and and now I've got uh, a fancy smart trainer just so I can understand as well. And <laughs> and uh, I I think it's really interesting. I think coming out of this. Um, quarantine kind of lockdown thing where we've been forced to do some some different things and you see the efficiency uh, i was never a fan of the kind of the pain cave the the indoor kind of work uh, although i understood for practical reasons why a lot of working people uh, went that go that road or depending where you live for a safety point of view on the bike but we're certainly seeing the the effectiveness of of this kind of environment for your training uh, can be really powerful, you know. Can can be can be really useful. So 
yeah, maybe we take some of that stuff uh, going forward. But mm-hmm. but th- th- those are, you know, any of those platforms you mentioned with a smart trainer certainly make indoor training so much more interesting and effective than, than years ago. And um, is a real benefit, I think. Mm, I can't wait to get one myself. I'm still using a trainer from about 15 years ago that just <laughs> in the corner of the garage, very old school, 12 five-minuters, big gear, don't overthink it, and that's about it. And it's kind of like I'm watching all these things on, on the social media and I'm like, actually, this kind of looks like a little bit more fun than what I'm used to. Like my little, it's not even a pain cave, it's a corner of the garage. So it's really just very dark and dingy. Um, What about uh, just, uh, you know, you you guys travel so much. Is there any kind of, for people listening, that places they should go check out for training that you've just loved and you highly recommend? Yeah, the, in 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 Europe, the the winter staple for a lot of athletes are, are the Canary Islands. Um, there there are different training resorts on 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 various islands: um, Lanzarote, Fuerteventura, Gran Canaria, uh, Tenerife. They all have sport resorts. Uh, they all have uh, hills and wind, and pretty pretty consistent uh, uh, warm weather in in the winter. So we've gravitated towards down there where. We know on the continent, you know, while the weather can be all right, it can still get pretty cold depending on the year where down in the Canary Islands, uh, it's very predictable. You very rarely get get change in, in weather that impacts the training uh, and it's not so far away. Um, inside uh, inside Europe, um, we've spent a lot of time on, on the island of Mallorca. Um, and uh, there's a there's a huge uh, cycling uh, culture there, and uh, so we've appreciated that. Uh, uh, there's various resorts. Uh, one of them we had a connection to called the Viva Hotels. Viva Blue has got their own hotel, and, there, and there's a number of these. But we've gone back there many times. So the po- the pool being on site to where you stay makes everything easier because your com- your commute is uh, minutes walking instead of getting in the car and, and the, just the efficiency of a training holiday or a training camp uh, is hard to beat. Uh, so we spent a lot of time in Mallorca and then also um, over in, in, in Girona, north of Barcelona and Banyolas, that area of Catalonia is great for training, really quiet roads, a lot of hills and, and some nice pools and lakes. And so we, we've spent a lot of time there in those regions. And, and you can also get into the Pyrenees from there um, to some of the altitude training. Um, so there are other places. I mean, over time, um, that familiarity has, has been really valuable. Um, but I'm always uh, keen to look out for, for how we might mix it up in the future, whether that be uh, St. Moritz in Switzerland have been a number of times. Uh, Livigno um, near St. Moritz on the Italian side is, is also quite good. And they've just built a track up there. Um, and uh, you know we've also spent time in in Flagstaff and in Tucson in um, in Arizona, uh, not as much the last years because there just hasn't been the races. But always appreciate going up to Flagstaff, the great uh, variety of running trails. It's incredible up there, and um, and and Tucson some years ago, but for the weather and and in in Boulder, um, I guess that's probably where you're at. Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 an endurance uh, mecca, really. Um, and uh, I've appreciated being that, being there, but I haven't done as many training camps there. More more visiting individual athletes and appreciating the lifestyle there. Mm. Mate, that's that's fantastic. All of those spots, I can see people just jotting them all down and going right. Here's our, here's our next vacation, racecation location. And uh, I, I did spend some time in Mallorca a couple of years ago, and I was never there as an athlete. I was just coaching an athlete there a couple of years ago and spent a few weeks. I was just blown away by 
the amount of people on bikes. I've never seen an economy that's basically driven by cycling. That that's what if you go to Mallorca, you you're there to ride bikes. It was just thousands of people on the road, and the the cycling was just extraordinary. But um, a lot of those places you've mentioned, I've spent a little bit of time. But I wish I had spent a little bit more time when I when I was an athlete. Um, but mate, the amount of athletes that have come to me for coaching or advice, um, I've sent your way. Believe it or not, I uh, I kind of say, look, there's one squad that you got to be a part of, and one coach you got to be with, and. And that's uh, that's yourself um, and the Joel Filio crew that you're with. I I have a young niece, uh, Kemper Reback, um, <laughs> who's mad about the sport, and uh, I just keep telling her, "Look, you got to reach out to this guy." It, and I don't care if you got to be an apprentice, carry bags, do whatever it takes, but if you want to make it, this is the guy that you got to be a part of. So um, I really, I really appreciate you coming on and, and spending this time and just dropping so many. So much knowledge, just so so much great stuff, but it's all so simple, as you said. It's like it's uh, complicated yet simple at the same time because it's um, you know just basically turn up and don't overdo it and just keep it consistent. Um, just some great messages in there, and I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. This has been absolutely fantastic episode. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love you to subscribe or share it and give me any feedback you can. Um, but mate, stay on the line and thank you for joining me. Thank you for so much, Greg. I really enjoyed catching up with you. Cheers, mate. Thanks everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.